Well, the subject of Paul's epistle to Philemon is disturbing to the modern reader. Philemon is a wealthy Christian slave owner who lives in Colossae. Onesimus is his runaway slave, but a slave who has recently become a believer through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who is imprisoned in Rome. Now, now Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master in Colossae, and he's asking Philemon to welcome him as a beloved brother in the Lord. Of course, we read that today, and naturally we assume Paul's referring to the liberation of Onesimus, what's technically, technically called a slave's manumission. I use that word a lot, manumission. After all, how can a Christian own, as legal property, a brother or a sister in Christ? And this is why modern Christians find the epistle to Philemon such a perplexing book in the Bible. Nowhere in the letter does Paul clearly command Philemon to liberate Onesimus or any other slaves he may own, be they Christian or pagan. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus or an apostle command Christian slave masters to manumit their slaves. In multiple passages, Christian slave masters are told to provide for their slaves, to treat them fairly, not harshly, to be devoted to the welfare of their slaves, but nowhere are they told in the pages of Scripture to liberate them. I've listed some of those texts in your handout. If you want to look there, there's no need to actually turn to each one in your own Bible. I just read them out for us, but this might be helpful. Colossians 3, 22-4-1. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So, do we read that and then say, thanks be to God? 1 Timothy 6.1 All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. 1 Peter 2.18 Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Titus 2, 9-10. Slaves, 
Teach slaves, rather, to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Finally, Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. As, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Man, you, I mean, we read that text, those texts out loud. Whew, man, <laughs> And let me just throw something else into the mix here, too. Did you know that slaves figure in no fewer than 13 of Jesus' parables? Slaves are in the parable of the weeds, Matthew 13, the unmerciful slave, Matthew 18, the vineyard workers, Matthew 20, the wicked tenants, Matthew 21, the wedding banquet, Matthew 22, the overseer, Matthew 24, the talents, Matthew 25, the doorkeeper, Mark 13, the waiting slaves, Luke 12, the barren fig tree, Luke 13, the prodigal son, Luke 15, the shrewd manager, Luke 16, and the obedient slave of Luke 17. But not in one of those parables does our Lord suggest slavery is iniquitous, iniquitous or sinful or evil. On the other hand, nowhere in Jesus' parables is slavery explicitly sanctioned. Rather, it's simply accepted as part of the social and economic status quo. And slavery was part of Judaism, too. In every period of its history, even the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all, all owned slaves. I think one of the benefits of being a, a, a buff of American cinema is being able to trace that nation's cultural mores over the decades as it's reflected and propagated in its films. So matters related to race and ethnicity, feminism, queer theory, issues of tolerance, cinematic violence, divorce, alcohol and tobacco consumption, profanity, modesty, sex, marriage, divorce, religion. There's 100 years of it preserved for us on celluloid, and it's, it's very evident. It's plain to see the change in cultural mores from decade to decade. Watching a movie from the 70s to the 90s is night and day. But as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the culture-transcending authoritative word of God, right? For all people, for all cultures. Uh, there is an unchanging, unchanging new covenant morality. And it's just a given for us, but I think particularly this side of the American Civil War, that slavery is one of the greatest evils human society has ever produced. So why then does the first century church seem to have such a non-interference, laissez-faire sort of attitude towards it? Why does God seem to have such a laissez-faire attitude towards slavery. Why didn't Jesus or an apostle ever once come out and say, slavery is a great evil that must be abolished? Have you ever wondered that? Beloved, those are legitimate and tough questions. And to be honest with you, they're questions I may not be able to answer to your satisfaction today. But it might be wise to look at some history first before we turn 
to the text of Philemon. All right? So the issue of slavery obviously was evaluated in a very different light by first century Christians compared to Christians living in modern liberal democracies. For instance, when we think of slavery, we probably think of black African slaves. We think of the antebellum South. We think of Haley's, uh, Alex Haley's roots, 12 years a slave, Django Unchained, things like that. However, there are several distinctive characteristics of Roman era slavery that we need to bear in mind. Look at your hand, I list some of them here. Number one, and it's number one for a reason, racial factors played no role. That alone is a huge difference. Roman era slavery had nothing to do with race or a particular people group, whereas slavery in America in the 17th through 19th centuries principally involved the acquisition of black African slaves forcibly taken from their homeland. But Roman slaves were virtually of every race of people in the Mediterranean region, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In his excellent book, Race and Culture, African-American scholar Thomas Sowell notes that every major world culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. Whites had enslaved other whites in Europe for centuries before the first black slave was brought to the Western Hemisphere. Only late in history were human beings even capable of crossing an ocean to capture millions of other human beings of a different race. So in the thousands of years before that, Europeans enslaved other Europeans. Asians enslaved other Asians. Africans enslaved other Africans. And the First Nations of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other First Nations of the Western Hemisphere. In the first century, the most common source of slaves were prisoners of war. However, people also voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. That's because there were no bankruptcy laws. It's what you did if you couldn't pay your debts. And if you were fortunate enough to have a good master and a good job, life in one sense was easier for you. Uh, your master was taking care of you. He had to provide for you. Now, I realize that's a bit like saying if someone cuts off your foot with an axe, they've really done you a favor because it's five less toenails you have to worry about trimming. Um, but think about it. If you can't get work to support your family, or if you get sick, if you get injured, unless you take to begging in the streets, you and your family will starve. There was no social safety net. And being able to sell yourself and your family into slavery was sort of the equivalent of a social welfare system. And if you could pay back your master your purchase price, you'd be released. That was the law. Those were the rules. Another distinctive of Roman era slavery. Number two, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated or manumitted during their lifetime. In fact, so many were being released from their servitude in the early first century AD that Caesar Augustus declared 30 year old, that 30 years old to be the minimum age for emancipation. Andrew T. Lincoln writes this, no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery. While there were brutal forms of slavery, the concept, the concept of indentured labor in which the laborer was not free to market his skill to other employers was considered a given. It's just an economic given. 
And owners paid their slaves an occasional sum of money called a peculium to reward them for their hard work. And this fund was commonly used by the slaves to purchase their freedom. By contrast, slaves in the New World had no hope for manumission and freedom. Three, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Although some slaves were confined to many years of hard labor in agriculture, manufacturing, or domestic duties. I mean, there were definitely salt mine slaves. Uh, many others served as doctors and teachers and writers and accountants and, and uh, ba- uh, bailiffs and overseers, secretaries, sea captains. African slaves, by contrast, in the antebellum south were seldom entrusted with responsible positions, nor did they have any training for any skilled job. They were forbidden even to learn to read. However, lest I create the wrong impression, slaves in the Roman Empire possessed few legal rights. They lacked honor. They were subject to whatever punishments their masters deemed appropriate and were sometimes treated with hideous cruelty. They were permitted no legally sanctioned marriage or family bonds. They could not keep their own children born to them while in slavery. They could be separated from their spouses by the slave master. And they were not allowed to own property of any kind. The estimates vary um, a bit, but basically the Roman Empire's population broke down three ways. Approximately one-third were currently slaves. One-third were emancipated slaves, and one-third were freeborn citizens. It makes for a fascinating study, and there are probably more points of dissimilarity I could mention, but probably the most important factor in our understanding, the early church's response to the abolition of slavery, is that the early Christians did not understand their calling in those terms which is remarkable because the church was full of slaves. Christians in the first century looked at the world and their role in the world from a biblical perspective. As James Hamilton explains, the authors of the New Testament were not out to revolutionize the existing social order, but to make disciples for Jesus. They weren't trying to overthrow governments or renovate social relations, but to make the gospel attractive. That comes up over and over again in those slavery texts I just read. They want to make the gospel look attractive. This is explicit in 1 Timothy 6.1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. And we, we respond, well, why in the world? Why? And he says, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Oh, the same thing is seen in Titus 2, 9 to 10. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. That is a far cry from slaves of the world. Unite. Do you see? The gospel... The gospel's the issue, not the emancipation of one-third of the Roman Empire. And so first-century Christians rejoiced in their identity as the people of the new realm, inaugurated by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
But they also knew that the old realm still existed and would exist until Jesus returned in glory. Slavery wasn't an institution that was going to be abolished anytime soon. It was the socioeconomic labor structure reality in which the early church existed. And so the church's focus was on encouraging believers to realize their new realm of existence was what ultimately mattered. And that this new existence must must dictate the way they related to the world and to each other. All the socioeconomic, political, earthly realities are trivial in comparison with the gospel's eternal spiritual realities. And bear in mind, there would be slaves and masters, multiple slaves and multiple masters in the same local church. All of them united to Christ. And part of the same spiritual family in an eternal bond of fellowship. 1 Timothy 6.2 Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And they both... Constantly, we need to resist any idea of a social hierarchy in the church with masters at the top and slaves on the bottom because to cave into that kind of thinking would be a denial of the gospel. In the spiritual realm, there is no social hierarchy in the church. That's why Paul could write in Galatians 3.26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither... Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11 Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now obviously, to be moved in the first century from the position of a slave to a freed person... That was a highly, highly valued improvement. And Christian slaves in the church were no doubt saving up to buy their freedom. And no doubt many would have looked at their free and freeborn brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and really struggled with the sin of envy and discontentment. Also, slavery would have placed considerable limitations on their Christian lives and service, humanly speaking. There's just certain things that you're not free to do if you're somebody else's slave. So... 7.30 Thursday night prayer meetings? Forget about it. Try 4.30 a.m. Before getting breakfast ready for the master and his family. But along comes the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 7.21 Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Don't let your social condition be of great concern to you. It's irrelevant. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. And then he adds this in verse 22. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. As John Stott notes, the slave who is called by God and is united to Jesus has entered the glorious liberty of the gospel. He is a former slave, a slave to sin and to Satan, who has now been freed by Jesus from that dark dominion. 
He has entered into a divine liberty, which matters so much more than his outward social circumstances, so much so that he should truly see himself as the Lord's freed person. That slave working in the salt mine. And with that new city comes this complementary truth that the believer who was a free person when Jesus called them to himself is now Jesus' slave. That's the language that we read of the New Testament. We are the slaves of Jesus. Brother, sister, Jesus bought you. He redeemed you. Redemption is slave market language. It's used deliberately. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with his precious blood. His life offered up vicariously in, in, in sacrifice for you. And your whole life now is to be lived in service to your new master. Your life is no longer your own to live. The Christian slave is free. And the Christian free person is Christ's slave because both have been purchased by Jesus' life and brought into God's family. And it's this new family reality that Paul addresses in his letter to Philemon. Brothers and sisters, in the book of Philemon, Paul is concerned with gospel entailments. Paul's writing about the nature of Christian fellowship and the obligations of Christians living in a community of faith. All members of the same church. And he's writing about being part of an eternal spiritual family, united one with another in Christ. He's writing about the fellowship of faith. The fellowship of faith. Philemon, the rich slave master, needs to recognize that his church family trumps in every way the prejudiced expectations of Roman society. He must now govern his attitude and his actions toward his slave, Onesimus, on the basis of the new spiritual reality that they share together. They're now one in Christ. And that fellowship with other Christians has certainly been there in the past for Philemon. Look at, Paul says so in verse 7. He says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. That's very nice. See, Philemon's ministry of love has encouraged the Apostle Paul. It's given the Apostle joy. It's, uh, it's refreshed the Lord's people at the deepest and most significant level of their being. God's grace is powerfully at work in Philemon. Philemon has proved himself a faithful Christian by his loving service. But now... The purity of his Christian fellowship is about to be tested. Will Philemon's fellowship with his slave and his brother in Christ, Onesimus, will it spring from his heart? Will it indeed be motivated by the love of the gospel? Or merely because the Apostle Paul commands him? We're halfway through the sermon, folks. But at last, we arrive at our first point. Now... We know from the book of Colossians that it was Tychicus who delivered this letter uh, from Paul. So I want you to picture the scene. Everyone's gathered in Philemon's home to hear this letter written by God's old and imprisoned apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and the church's wealthy host, he's the letter's subject. It's a personal letter from Paul to Philemon, but Paul wants the whole church to hear it. So it's like a situation like this we have here today. Very similar. They've been included in the greeting, the whole church. And the first seven verses, I mean, they're very nice indeed. It's, it's quite flattering, actually, right? Paul writes, Onesimus, you are a dear friend. You are a fellow worker in the gospel. You have shown in your ministry the quality of your faith and your love. 
you understand, Philemon, the nature of Christian fellowship. A fellowship created by faith in Christ. I'm encouraged by you, Philemon, and I have great joy in you because you've refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And maybe at that point in the reading, Philemon's wife gave her husband's leg a little squeeze and whispered, isn't this lovely, darling? Verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure at that, a few heads in the church turned uh, to look at, at Philemon, and perhaps a few eyes narrowed in suspicion. What could this, this proper and fitting action be that Philemon ought to do, that Paul could order him to do, but he hasn't done it? So, I mean, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's going to test the true depths of Philemon's love and the extent to which he understands the nature of Christian fellowship. Philemon, do you really get this? Let's use your runaway thieving slave as an example. Let's see if you really understand it or not. Paul wants Philemon to do what he ought to do for the right reasons. It has to be out of love. It just can't be because he's being forced. Now, Paul hasn't told Philemon what he wants him to do yet. Uh, But it's plain to see he's more interested in Philemon's heart than the bare action. I mean, anybody can obey an order they hate, right? They just grit their teeth and they do it. David. Has there ever been a time in your life, in your whole life, when your mom and your dad told you to do something, some chore perhaps, and you obeyed them, but not because you wanted to, but because they're your parents and God put them in charge and you live in their house and so you got to do it, right? For many adults, that's what our jobs are like. What we're, we, you know, we do what we're told to do because we're people under authority, even if we're accomplishing the task grudgingly. Well, that's not what Paul wants here in this case. If Philemon's heart isn't right in this matter, then it's all for naught. The gospel just drops to the floor. And I'm sure as this letter is being read aloud to the congregation, Paul's think, or Philemon's thinking, sure, Paul, you got it, brother. You just name it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. It's fine. What, what is this? And then like a bolt out of the blue, 9b. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. This is the first time Onesimus' name has been mentioned in the letter. So this favor that Paul asks of Philemon, this action which Philemon ought to do out of love, out of Christian fellowship, Philemon and his listening in church... Now learn concerns of all people in the world, Onesimus, his runaway thieving slave. Philemon is probably thinking, how on earth does Paul even know who Philemon is? And I I doubt that Onesimus is in the room. Uh, For his own safety, this matter needs to be settled before Onesimus shows up on Philemon's door with his cap in hand, right? I mean, his master actually has the legal authority to kill him. But here we have Paul saying this runaway slave is now his own son. He's Paul's own child. Verse 10 translates a Greek verb that means to give birth to. Spiritually speaking, Paul gave birth to Onesimus. Onesimus became a Christian through Paul. The two men obviously have a very close relationship. But notice something else. 
Paul's not telling Philemon, be nice to Onesimus for my sake. No, the emphasis is on Onesimus' new status. He's a believer now. It's not his apostolic connections. Onesimus is one who by God's grace now belongs to the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Galatians 6.15 Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So Paul isn't appealing for the Onesimus that Philemon knew in the past, back in the day. He's appealing for the new Onesimus. The Onesimus who has been born again. The Onesimus who is now in an indivisible union with Christ and his church. Verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Onesimus actually means useful. But it seems in his former life he didn't live up to his name. But Onesimus' new birth has transformed his character. Now he is useful, both to Paul as he ministers from prison in Rome, and Paul anticipates to Philemon back in Colossae. And in an act that is sacrificial to Paul's ministry, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. He sends this Christian slave back to his Christian slave master. And Paul does so that certain, he is certain that Philemon is going to do right by him. Verse 13. I would have liked to keep him here with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Now, what that favor is, or as some translations have it, good deed, what it is, depends on how we interpret verses 16 and 21. So let me just lay my cards on the table now, okay? What I understand Paul to be hinting at here is the manumission of Onesimus, his liberation from slavery. I believe Paul is saying he wants Philemon to grant Onesimus his freedom so that he can come back to Rome as a free man and help Paul in his ministry. And this takes us into our second point, the providence of God. One of the things I, I really like doing from time to time is reading the testimonies of the members of this church. The one page, for some of you, the one page explanation of how God saved each of us. Uh, I did it again, actually, this week in preparation for the sermon. And it's, it's such an amazing thing to see the providential hand of God at work in the salvation of all of our souls. It's just, just go back and read those, those, those templates again that I sent out to you all, if you remember. Uh, beloved, not a few of us, reading through those testimonies, we were on the road to worldly ruin before God intervened, to say nothing of spiritual calamity. There was stuff I did back when I was an unbeliever that if I had been caught, I might be coming out of jail right about now. So I'll leave that to your imagination. But, and, and, and the spiritual course of my life, right? From this random event to that random influence to this drunken conversation, I never could have guessed, even as it was happening, even one week before the Lord saved me, that by God's grace it would end in my believing the gospel. To my finite eyes, there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. 
Loved ones, all the events of our lives, either the sin and the rebellion committed by us or the wickedness and evil perpetrated against us, none of it just happened. Nothing was left to chance. God orchestrated it all that we might eventually bow the knee to Christ and become part of his family. And Paul sees that same thing at work in Onesimus, stealing from his master and running away to Rome. It's not random, Paul says here. He says it's God did this, right? Look at verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you, and you just see the, the, the uh, diplomacy there again, he separated. Actually, illegally ran away and stole from you to, in furtherance of his escape. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So this act of separation, a separation financed by theft, has the purpose of restoring Onesimus to Philemon forever. Paul is saying God was behind all of it, Philemon. God had a beneficial intention in view. It was always God's good, saving desire to save Onesimus. But providentially, how does this all work out? Well, God ordained that Onesimus be a slave in the first place, and then he caused Onesimus to be separated from Philemon with the purpose that Onesimus should go to Rome, meet Paul, and be saved. Now, God has brought Philemon and Onesimus together eternally. Now they share a common faith in Jesus Christ that gives them together eternal life. How then, how should Philemon receive Onesimus back into his house, into his church? Verse 16. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, a beloved brother. Okay, this verse is the key to everything. If we're going to understand this, we need to delve into the weeds a bit. Hang on to your hats. At first blush, the phrase no longer a slave could appear to settle the matter as to what Paul is expecting Philemon to do. Right? Clearly he expects Philemon to set Onesimus free. No longer a slave. On the other hand, Paul goes on to say that Philemon is to treat Onesimus as more than a slave. Which seems to, it seems to suggest Onesimus will remain a slave, right? At least for the time being. The issue is by no means as crystal clear as some interpreters make it. I mean, some commentaries just come down here. This is clear as day. This whole thing is a track for liberation of slaves. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. But it's likely this phrase means no longer as primarily a slave in your view of him. You are no longer thinking of as being primarily a slave as you consider Onesimus. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a beloved brother. See, there's been a change happening here in your own thoughts. In effect, the apostle is saying, Philemon, your relationship with Onesimus will no longer be dictated by your legal relationship, the master-slave relationship, but your spiritual relationship. Your brothers in Christ. The New Living Translation captures that sense very well. He is no longer like a slave to you. Now they are beloved brothers in the Lord. There's a new family relationship in place. Verse 16b. 
He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Folks, it might not look like it, but when it comes to the issue of slavery and liberation, manumission, that's the most important part of the whole letter. And I think the ESV translation brings out the flow of Paul's thought better than the NIV. But alas, the ESV does use the word bondservant instead of slave, which I think is unfortunate. It's just, it's slave. ESV says this, verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. I think that's a clear translation. It gets behind Paul's thoughts a whole lot better because it puts beloved brother front and center. It's controlling the whole sentence. Um, As a beloved brother, especially to me, Paul, but how much more a beloved brother to you, eh, Philemon? Both a beloved brother in the flesh and a beloved brother in the Lord. And it's argued that by saying a beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord, the apostle is hinting at a change in Onesimus' worldly status in the flesh. It's different, as well as his spiritual status in the Lord. The apostle is hinting here, again, at liberation, at manumission. And I say that because the contrast between in the Lord and in the flesh is very striking here. In his excellent Philemon commentary, Doug Moo writes this, In the Lord covers all possible elements of the Christian's experience. Paul must then intend some particular emphasis by adding in the flesh. I like that. I think that makes sense. But what does a brother in the flesh mean? Following Constantine Campbell, it most likely refers to the new relationship that will ensue between these two men. Once Philemon frees Onesimus, which is Paul's apparent desire, they are already on equal footing spiritually, right? They're brothers in the Lord. And so Paul's reference to their brotherhood in the flesh constitutes another element of his appeal for Onesimus' freedom. They will no longer be master and slave, but brothers. Brothers on equal footing, on human terms, equal footing as they already are in spiritual terms. Equal. In summary, the Apostle Paul is saying that treating Onesimus as more than a slave means, in the end, not treating him as a slave at all. Now, at this point, Paul hasn't technically asked Philemon to do anything. But now the Apostle finally comes out and he makes a direct request. He's just hinted at his ultimate request in verse 16. He wants Philemon to liberate his beloved brother in, the, in Christ Onesimus. But his immediate appeal is that Philemon would welcome his runaway slave as he would welcome the Apostle Paul himself. Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, Philemon, if you have any fellowship with me in our common faith, welcome him as you would welcome me. In other words, Onesimus is your brother now, just as I'm your brother, the Apostle Paul. Verse 18, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. In other words, has he robbed you? I'll pay for it. 
Verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. This is my promissory note. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Or as the NLT translates it, I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Philemon is in debt to Paul for eternal life. So his gratitude to Paul for his spiritual wealth should more than cancel any debt that Onesimus has incurred in financing his escape through theft. He needs to forgive. He needs to welcome back his new brother in the Lord. And then echoing what he's already thanked God for in Philemon's life, back in verse 7, Paul writes, verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Just, just listen to that, that sentence, right? I mean, again, we could, we could say this to each other in a certain kind of context, but Paul's saying, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. In other words, Philemon, the fellowship that's created among those who have faith in Jesus Christ brings with it obligations to one another. There's obligations. So I fully expect to derive some spiritual benefit when I hear all about what you've done in this matter. Right? Minister to me, brother. Refresh my heart in Christ. The ball's in your court. Follow through. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. New City, faith in Jesus Christ is always accompanied by the call to obedience. When we accept Jesus as our Savior from sin, we accept him as Lord of our life. Jesus rules over our life. We are his holy slaves. And there is no such thing, biblically speaking, as what's come to be known in some circles as the carnal Christian. Someone who accepts Christ as their Savior, but who doesn't obey him. That is an utterly unbiblical contradiction. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And some of those good works that are to be characterizing our lives as believers are the loving obligations created by our fellowship of faith, one with another. That's the most important part of the whole, st- of the whole sermon right there. And if we're faithful, all right, if we're obedient, we're seeing those obligations through, beloved. It's all obedience prompted by love. And not only is Paul confident about Philemon's obedience, Paul also knows Philemon will do even more than he asks. Now, there is a tantalizingly unspecific reference. Again, I believe Paul is hinting at manumission in verse 21, at liberation. Verse 22, and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me. And that's the only direct command in the whole letter. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. And then Paul relays the greetings of his co-workers in Rome, two of whom will eventually write a gospel, Mark and Luke. One of whom, Aristarchus, volunteers to share the apostle's imprisonment in order to help him. Epaphras, the prayer warrior, and Demas, the apostate, of whom we read in 2 Timothy 4.10, because Demas loved this world, he's going to desert Paul in his imprisonment and go to Thessalonica. You see, before I move to my final wrapping up concluding statement, there's just an important historical point I want us to consider. Do you know what the driving impetus eventually was for the abolition of slavery? 
It was the evangelical awakening in England. In 1734, God raised up a young preacher by the name of Howell Harris in Wales. In 1738, George Whitfield began to preach to the coal miners in Bristol. In 1740, the Wesley Brothers started. And over the next 60 years, there came such a mass of social overturn out of the preaching of the gospel that Britain was no longer the same. Out of this came new laws on child labor. Out of this came the beginning of trade unions. Out of this came the beginning of prison reform. Out of this also came the beginnings of uh, welfare, hospital care, and the like. And out of this came the abolition of slavery. Christians rammed abolition through Parliament in the beginning of the 19th century, and then eventually they used British gunboats to stop the slave trade across the Atlantic. While there were about 11 million Africans who were shipped to America and many didn't make it, there were about 13 million Africans shipped to become slaves in the Arab world. And it was the British, prompted by people whose hearts had been changed by Jesus Christ, who sent their gunboats to the Persian Gulf to oppose this. My new city, brothers and sisters, what we've seen over these past two weeks is that the letter to Philemon is not first and foremost about slavery. It's about Christian fellowship. Christian friendship and unity based on the truth and application of the gospel. What God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. That committed partnership, right? We talked about last week in which personal interests are subsumed under the common mission of the church for God's glory. Beloved, this short letter gives us a beautiful picture of the mutual love, the mutual respect that's to characterize the body of Jesus Christ. When we repent and trust in Christ for our salvation, we become part of an eternal family. We're joined in a spiritual union in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we incur all the benefits and all the obligations, all the responsibilities of that communion. And Paul's letter to Philemon is fundamentally all about those responsibilities. I mean, between slave and master, sure, but how much more for us? If, if the gospel changes that relationship, how's it going to change our relationships? This epistle is about how our relationship with Jesus changes every relationship in the church, even that between a master and a slave. We are one body with many parts, and Christ is our head. And because we're linked to one another in a lifeline of grace, we bring the gospel to bear on every facet of our relationship with one another. None of us are acting in a private capacity. No matter is private in the church, but inevitably affects and is affected by one's brothers and sisters in the new family of God. Amen.